This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to The Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Scylla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Jay Shridhar. Dr. Shridhar is a retina surgeon in Miami, Florida. Dr. Shridhar, thank you again for joining me today. Scylla, thanks for having me, and it's always a pleasure. I've hosted podcasts, and I've done guests on podcasts, and I would much rather be a guest because I think other people like you do a much better job hosting. So I'm excited. I really like this podcast you do. Well, we're really excited to have you. I think you're going to teach me personally a lot, but also hopefully our audience. So let's jump right into the case presentation. This is a 32-year-old man who presents with two weeks of floaters and decreased visual acuity. Exam reveals a visual acuity of 20 over 70 in the right eye and 20 over 20 in the left eye. On dilated exam, you notice one plus vitreous cell with peripheral retinal whitening and opacification with areas of hemorrhages. Now, Obviously, your mind is probably going certain places already just based on that description, but how would you first approach this patient? Yeah, that's a, this is a very important case to review. You know, there are very few things, thankfully, in ophthalmology that are rapidly blinding, uh, but a couple of those things can present this way. So I think this is an important case to review. So I think one of the important things is to not jump just to the exam and to talk about history with this patient. I think that it's really critical to know a couple of things. Is this a patient who is known immunocompromised, right? So is this a patient who has a known history or high risk for HIV, AIDS? Is this a patient who has other comorbidities? Has he been in the hospital recently? Is he a transplant patient? Anything that could put him at risk for some sort of weird or more unusual infections? Uh, and then I think it's important on exam, especially if you have ancillary testing, to start thinking about um, imaging. And, and I think, first of all, I think that if you have access to fundus photography, I think wide field fundus photography is huge for cases like these. One, to sort of document the extent of things, um, because when we take our peripheral sweeps with our exams, we get these snapshots, and then we do a good job of drawing and sort of putting that together in our heads. But sometimes you get a photo and you really can get an impressive view of sort of how circumferential some findings are or how sectoral they are. Uh, I think the other nice thing about photos is this is where phone a friend becomes really useful. And more and more of us now, especially if you're not a retina specialist and you're seeing a patient like this, this may be someone you may want to show the photo to someone. So I think a wide field phone photo, if you have access, is really nice. Um, I think an OCT can be useful if um, it's kind of our bread and butter in retina. I feel like every retina patient gets an OCT these days, but I like an OCT just to see if, again, is there involvement in the macula? Because that may also change the rapidity at what you do uh, for a patient like this. You know, some people may talk about, do you do a fluorescein? If you have access to a fluorescein, how critical that is? I mean, I, I think that 
I think it depends how big a diagnostic dilemma this ends up being. Um, but and then the final thing is it didn't really say in that stem whether or not this is bilateral. Right. So I think that that's one thing for trainees who are out there. It's one of the things that you really just want to remember and in your head is you get so focused on that eye that's 2070. And maybe this is only in that eye. What's going on in the other eye? So if you see the same thing in the other eye, that's a totally different differential than if it's just confined to that one eye. Um, so differential diagnosis, right? So, so like things I think about. I think I said there's only a couple things in ophthalmology and retina that are rapidly blinding. If I see something that sounds like retinal whitening and hemorrhage, I'm thinking of retinal necrosis. And from an infectious standpoint, viral retinitis is one of those things that can move very quickly and can blind the patient, especially acute retinal necrosis. For your immunocompromised patient, you're thinking more of progressive outer retinal necrosis or porn or CMV retinitis, um, which thankfully CMV is not as rapid as RN or porn, but is on, again, that differential. Those aren't the only things that can give you rapid retinal necrosis, right? So infectious-wise, Toxo can do this, not as dangerous and not as fast, but can do this. Um, syphilis and TB can do whatever they want. And then if he's immunocompromised, all bets are off. It could be basically anything. But especially if it's circumferential, and if this is a healthy 32-year-old, I'm really thinking I have a high degree of suspicion for acute retinal necrosis, viral retinitis. I always tell my residents uh, when I teach them imaging, I give imaging conferences multiple times a year, I say, don't just get boxed into thinking about infectious etiologies, but we want to think about those first because they're quote unquote most dangerous. I always say, go through your algorithm. Could it be neoplastic, right? So sometimes you think it looks like peripheral retinacrosis, but really you may be looking at rot spots, whitish areas in the retina. It could be leukemia, right? And leukemic retinopathy, that's something that, again, it could be life-threatening to a patient if they have untreated leukemia. Lymphoma can present in weird ways, oh, this would be unusual. And then there's sort of your autoimmune things that can give you sort of a necrotic or vasculitic picture, especially things like Bichette's and sarcoid. Uh, but again, front and center, if you're thinking, what will I need to do right now to prevent this patient from going blind? You really want to think about infectious retinitis. And if you have a high degree of suspicion for those things, I think this is, you know, we can talk about this now is, I mean, treatment, do you intervene, right? Do you, and if you are someone who has access to injectable antivirals or to PCR testing, is this someone that you do? an AC paracentesis and inject antivirals. And I think, again, it's a clinical diagnosis. I mean, the criteria for ARN is a clinical diagnosis. If you have a high degree of suspicion, then I recommend, yeah, it's probably better to treat. And now that we have access to PCR that's very sensitive, you may also want to send an AC sample and send it off for HSV and VZV and CMV and maybe even Toxo if you want to make sure that you rule out Toxo in your differential. That's really helpful. So you already touched on this a little bit, but let's say that your patient had a CD4 count of 50. You kind of gave us two big brackets of viral retinitis. You have the CMV retinitis and you have porn. Those are the two that you're most worried about. How do we distinguish between a herpetic viral retinitis versus CMV? What are some of the treatment options for both of them? And would you wait to get the PCR back before you treat, or would you just treat based on what you think it is? That's a fantastic question. I think, first of all, important remember, so if you're like taking a test, and someone talks about a CD4 count of 50 or less, and you definitely want to be thinking against CMV or porn. You also want to understand in real life that if the CD4 count is that low, it could be anything because there's no immune response being mounted. So anything right. could give you a necrotic retina. Um, I would say that, so distinguishing those, so CMV retinitis is caused by CMV, cytomegalus, uh, cytomegalus, cytomegalovirus. And Say that really fast three times. I know. It's like it's, <laughs> a, it's a mouthful. And then you have uh, porn, which is usually caused by either VZV, a virus, or herpes simplex, more commonly VZV. 
Um, so the, the, the big difference is CMV has kind of its three major ways it presents. There's sort of your classic hemorrhagic uh, appearance, which is what people call the pizza pie. Exactly. I was going to say. Yeah. It, but... And what I tell people, it, the easiest way for me to remember this, and I know we put ARN on the immunocompetent, but just in terms of CMV and ARN look, ARN behaves more like uh, arteritis and it causes arterial occlusions. So think of more like sectoral BROs. You get whitening of the retina, but not much hemorrhage because the arteries are getting occluded. CMV has a V in it. So I remember V for veins. CMV looks a lot more in this hemorrhagic picture, like multiple RVOs, vein occlusions, because it's a phlebitis. And it occludes the veins, which causes this hemorrhagic and white appearance that goes back and forth. So that's your classic CMV is that pizza pie. But don't forget there's two other ways it presents. One is the granular form, which is just sort of this nondescript kind of whitish, doesn't really look too exciting. And these are actually patients often are misdiagnosed early with cotton wool spots or HIV retinopathy. And then you watch them a couple days later and this little white area gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Terrifying. And uh, your heartbeat just starts going up a little bit. And then that third is the frosted branch, which is, again, very impressive for anyone who hasn't seen it. Look up a picture of a frosted branch at AGS. Again, it's one of the prettiest things in retina. It's also one of the worst things in the world when you see it. But um, CMV is on the differential for frosted branch angiitis. Porn is going to progress, uh, present closer to the macula. Again, it can look pretty nondescript to begin with, but it is rapidly progressive compared to CMV. And again, we usually don't get to that point, but if you have, unfortunately photos from a couple days ago and you see a patient, if it hasn't really moved much and it's moved slowly, think more CMV. If it's really progressing faster, think about porn. And that's because zoster and simplex tend to be a little more virulent than CMV, which we all tend to have CMV. Treatment-wise, you're asking like, would you treat if you don't have a diagnosis? So the treatment is um, a little bit different. You're talking about systemic medications, right? So you have the classic drugs used, for example, are valacyclovir, valtrex, or valgancyclovir, valcyte. Valacyclovir, more useful for zoster and simplex. Valgancyclovir, more useful for CMV. If you're not sure which it is, you probably should treat the ones that are more virulent in an immunocompromised patient. So probably you're going to go with valacyclovir or valtrex. It's also easier to get um, in most pharmacies. That being said, it's not going to do a great job of treating CMV. So once you get that diagnosis, you're going to switch that patient over. And then in terms of injectables, people ask about gancyclovir or boscarnate. Right, what do you inject? heavily tested. I mean, what have you seen? I mean, I, I, you've been at Maasai and other places. Do people normally treat with both? They do both. Yeah. They do both. And I'm basing this solely off of talking to one of my best yeah. friends who's a retina fellow right now, but she says that we do both. We do both. And I think that's an academic center. And I'm also an academic center, ivory tower things. We're like, oh, we just tell our residents to do both. In, real, in the real world, most people don't have access to both. So if you're in that real world setting, first of all, you don't have to inject. In theory, if you put them on systemic drug, either IV or PO, you'll reach a pretty high intravitreal concentration really rapidly. That being said, if it's threatening the macula, and I talked about with that with the OCT imaging earlier, or the optic nerve, most people will double treat. They'll inject at least once or twice and also start systemic treatment. And so... It really comes down to what you have access for. Um, Foscarnet tends to be a little better in terms of prospective coverage than gancyclovir, where there may be some resistance. But again, you often don't have options. And if you're in a situation where it's going to take you a day or two to get a patient to get foscarnet versus injecting them with gancyclovir right now, you just use the one that you have. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're so lucky to have resources at our fingertips, but that's obviously not the case in most places. 
So let's shift gears a little bit here. Obviously, this is a huge topic, right? Infectious retinitis. Yeah. What if instead of that, we erase this patient's history and we said they have a liver abscess? Yeah, yeah. Or what if we were worried about other sources of endogenous endophthalmitis? What are some salient points that we need to think about as we're thinking about these patients? So it's really funny. Um, you know, we didn't predetermine this topic. You just came to me and asked this. And it's funny because if you asked me as a second year resident midway through the year what I wanted to do a fellowship in, I would have said, if I had a choice, I would be an infectious uveitis specialist. Wow. I, I didn't want to do all of uveitis, and I still don't. I really value the cause you do, but I always thought infectious uveitis was really interesting. And thankfully, it's just a small component of what we did. You can't really build a career as just an infectious specialist, but I thought it was really cool. So you know, when you start thinking about things like liver abscesses, endogenous, I always tell people you need to think about endogenous endophthalmitis because we don't see it that often. And then if you don't see it, you don't think about it. And the thing is, the questions that lead you to think about it aren't questions we normally ask patients when they're in our exam chair, right? But it is one of those things. If you talk about, again, we're talking about things that can kill a patient if they have an undiagnosed line infection, abscess, endocarditis, um, they could die. And it may not be immediately, but that is something that can affect them systemically. So, you know, the classic, if there's a stem saying their liver abscess, the classic organism people talk about is Klebsiella. Uh, you have to be in the right part of the world usually, or they have to have gone to the right part of the world, which is Southeast Asia, China. Um, you know, that is usually where the classic sort of it's endemic in, in the water supply. And the biggest series in the literature of endogenous Klebsiella and Alphamitis, if you look at them, all come from that region. Um, not as many, thankfully, in the U.S., if you have, but what, so what questions are you asking, right? So you want to ask, um, okay, have you been in the hospital recently? Have you been to those areas? Uh, do you have any sort of abdominal discomfort? Any other signs or symptoms of hepatitis, for example? Things we probably haven't thought about since your intern year or medical school. If you're thinking more, okay, I want to make sure they don't have like Canada, because Canada is actually the most common cause of endogenous endothelmitis in the United States. The most common reason people get it is, and we did a big paper on this probably like seven, eight years ago, it's recent abdominal surgery, recent hospitalization, indwelling catheter, indwelling line. Again, questions patients aren't going to volunteer the answer to you unless you start asking. And again, we're not usually taking off their clothes and searching for a catheter or a line. But if you ask these questions and you start thinking, um, IV drug use, right? Again, we get a social history usually provided to us by a staff member. Maybe you're doing consult in the ER. Someone wrote it down. I find, again, there's been a couple series on this. Most patients do not volunteer IV drug use. You need to ask them multiple times. And I vividly remember J.P. Dunn, who was a uveitis doctor at Wills when I was a fellow uh, and one of my heroes. I had seen IV drug use cause endophthalmitis. Enoth and I remember going and seeing a patient in the ER as a fellow because I got called. And the patient, it looked to me like Canada endophthalmitis and a young, healthy patient. And I said, Are, have you used IV drugs? He's like, yeah, but, you know, not for like two months. And I'm quit. And I'm clean. And he was very sincere. And I was like, when did this start? He's like, you really started like a week ago. And I was like, okay. Like, you know, the timing doesn't really make sense. And I, it was like 9 o'clock at night. And I, I was like, you know, I don't know what to do. I'm going to call Dr. Dunn. I could always call, call him. And I tell him the whole story. And he listens. And he says, do you think this patient has candida endothelitis? I said, yeah, it looks like it. He's like, he's injecting drugs. And I said, but he said he wasn't, and I trust him. He's like, here's what I want you to do. You can put me on hold, put the phone outside the room. I'm going to walk back in there, close the door, and tell him, look, I want you to be honest with me because it's important because otherwise you could go blind. Are you injecting drugs or not? I'm like, okay. He's not using, but I'll do that. <laughs> and I do that, and I walk in, and I'm like, okay. 
it's really important. If you don't tell me, you're going to go blind. Are you using IV drugs? He's like, yeah, I, I injected this morning. And so I don't say that to be flippant or say that people lie, but I do say that you need to really push people because there's a stigma. And he was afraid that, you know, as a physician that I wouldn't treat him, for example, if I thought it was related to the drug. So like you need to push people for that. Um, and clinically, endogenous looks a little different than viral retinitis. So right for Canada, the classic thing you look for, Canada tends to be um, spread to the eye through the choroid. Um, and the highest blood supply from the choroid in the retina is in the macula. So the patients who typically you'll see, who are, and they also tend to be more symptomatic, which biases it to the patients we see, they're going to be patients who present, they usually have some sort of yellowish lesion in the, um, in the macula. If you had an OCT, you'll see disruption of the RPE, and then you'll see overlying vitritis. They call it the classic string of pearls. You see these microabscesses. That's, again, a, a classic clinical diagnosis. You don't even have to ask the patient the questions. You do to confirm. But if you see that on a board to exam, or if you see it in a patient, you're thinking Canada, they have to have a risk factor. Start asking about those risk factor questions. And then staph um, is a lot of times associated with endocarditis. That can be an IV drug user. I've also seen it in patients with who have recently had some sort of a knee or hip replacement that got infected. I've seen it in patients who, have, again, have had an indwelling line recently. And the big thing I'll say with staph, it's nasty when it gets to the eye. And a lot of times those patients, you don't have a view. Those are the hardest patients, the mystery box patients who have AC cell and like a pupillary membrane, they don't dilate because they're syneked and you do a B scan, you see vitritis, you're like, okay, is this a panuveitis? Is it infectious? But if you look and you see like a subretinal abscess and choroidal thickening, you start thinking it could be a lot of things, but staph is high on my differential because it classically forms those subretinal abscesses, these big ones, and then it will break through versus Canada, which forms these little micro abscesses and doesn't seem, seem to be as impressive when you look at it on ultrasound. This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. So again, that's my thoughts on endogenous endophthalmitis. You don't want to miss it. And again, it's one of the few occasions where you're going to re urgently refer a patient often to go to an emergency room, get blood cultures, and often get admitted for testing. That's one thing as ophthalmologists that we really need to keep in mind is that, you know, what are the things that are critical to this patient's overall well-being? And, you know, we can really make a difference in their um, diagnosis. And then, you know, that story about your attending and the IV drug user, sometimes you need to go that extra mile to show them that we're all here to care for them and that no one's judging them and we just want what's best for them. So that's a really, really important reminder. So when we were talking about candida, we were talking about those macular lesions. Let's say instead, we're going down a different rabbit hole here, you saw a placoid lesion in the macula. So speaking of, of developing that rapport with the patient, syphilis. Syphilis is one of those things that if you're a resident, you learn to put it on every single differential for everything. It's like, exactly. again, we're always just like, if you don't know in conference and you're a junior resident, you just tell them, look, just say syphilis, just say TB, just say lymphoma, and you get out of jail, right? Um, but then we still forget about it. And part of the reason we forget about it to so that same question of respect in patients is like, A, not most, most of us aren't taking a really detailed sexual history on our patients. B, we're uncomfortable with it, even though we shouldn't be. 
Um, and because, see, because the patient knows we're uncomfortable with it, we ask in an awkward manner, they don't feel comfortable disclosing it. Because again, there's sort of that fear of being judged and fear of maybe I won't get the treatment, even subconsciously, I won't get the treatment and guidance I need because now this person is judging me for behavior that they don't think is right. And the real truth is anyone can get syphilis, right? Um, it, obviously, unprotected sex is your biggest risk factor, uh, but it can happen in heterosexual, homosexual relationships. And, and syphilis, it's a problem. It's on the comeback, right? It's really come back big in a lot of urban areas, Miami included. We see a lot of syphilis, unfortunately, in the eye in Miami. Uh, you know, syphilis, again, can present in so many different ways, but you're describing sort of that classic appearance, um, which is acute um, syphilis, syphilitic posterior placoid choreoretinitis. There's another mouthful if you say exactly. three times fast. <laughs> so I think that uh, most people will diagnose, misdiagnose ocular syphilis when they first see it, because unless you have those classic plaques, which is once the vision's pretty poor, it's pretty subtle. You know, and patients usually have kind of this nonspecific complaint. They usually have a little bit of trace vitreous cells. So they may complain a little bit of floaters. And you'll see them on your slit lamp exam. You see little tiny cells in the vitreous in your OCT. You'll look at the OCT and squint at it because it looks normal. But the thing that you'll classically see is that your ellipsoid line where the photoreceptors live is not going to look normal. It won't be gone but it will sort of be absent, and you'll see what I call the people call the inflammatory excrescences, these little kind of nodules. And a lot of times people just are glancing quickly, and they're like, oh, those are drusen. But they're not, because they're superficial. They're above the RPE. They're where the outer retina should be. And now the belief is those are collections of macrophages that come in to sort of fight the treponemes that are there. Then you get an FA, because you're like, oh, the FA is going to show me the answer. And FA is always so disappointed. It's like this nonspecific. It's not really exciting. But if you really squint again at those late frames, you'll see this very small, very interesting small vessel vasculitis, and often it's temporal to the macula. So these placoid lesions a lot of times start temporal to the fovea and the temporal macula and sort of spread, but that's where you'll see that small vessel leakage. So how do you diagnose it? Number one, you ask the question. So you have to ask the questions. But number two, I think we just test almost everyone. Um, testing for syphilis has gone through a lot of iterations, and I won't belabor that. You can spend an hour talking about it. But um, I would test for it in these situations. The difficult part is if someone tests positive, and again, this is the part ophthalmologists aren't usually excited because we're an outpatient specialty, is the treatment for ocular syphilis. You have to treat them essentially like they have neurosyphilis, which means admission, which means intravenous penicillin, or you get an IV penicillin outpatient somehow with like a line, and then lumbar puncture plus or minus what infectious disease thinks about to rule out neurosyphilis. But really important, again, syphilis rarely moves fast. And the good thing is if you treat it, even if they have reduced vision, a lot of times you treat it, it hasn't been going on for a while, these patients have rapid visual recovery. You give them their penicillin and it's like the magic juice. And a week later, you look at that OCT and you're like, wow, it's all better. The ellipsoid came back. So what happened there? Did the photoreceptors regrow? No, because they don't divide. But something about the imaging change where you couldn't see that they were attenuated and now they're back and they're healthy and they're flourishing. But yeah, definitely something you want to not forget about. I feel like if you're studying for oral boards out there, uh, it will show up because people love to ask about syphilis for good reason. That's so helpful. I actually didn't know that the OCT returns to baseline normal. That's really interesting. Yeah, not it's fascinating. Case. Yeah, if it's been there for a while, sure. not necessarily. Sure. But these patients can actually have really good visual prognosis. So it's just about so. And again, it's usually, it gets considered a, a secondary syphilis, not a primary. So right. they oftentimes may have had an exposure months before and don't realize it. 
But yeah, they can actually recover back really well. I have, there's been many examples at our institution, other institutions, 20, 70, 20, 80, patient can't see, and then they're 20, 20 a week or two later. It's so, amazing. Yeah. One of the, we love that in ophthalmology. You can of get course. it through cataract surgery sometimes. Yeah, exactly. As a refractive cataract. Yeah, but yeah. as a retina surgeon, you almost never get that. So sometimes you need penicillin to get that. That's really amazing. So let's just circle back to our patient. Assuming that they have CMV retinitis from our first series of questions, how would you counsel them on prognosis? Yeah. So I think one of the biggest questions is where is the CMV in the retina right now? So if it's peripheral, which hopefully it is when you diagnose it and the macula is good and the optic nerve looks fine, you start treatment. They actually can do really well from the standpoint. Again, everything in retina, it's so funny. I feel like 95% of the time we're always talking at the macula. But it's true because that's most of your visual acuity. They may lose some peripheral vision, but it's okay. The bigger, the two other big questions though, um, the one big elephant in the room is their CD4 count is 50. So if you look at the mortality for patients who have CMV retinitis historically in the pre-heart area, it was very high. And actually most of these patients end up dying of uh, MAI and MAC infections in the GI system. So that's one thing to think about is these, this patient's at high risk of death. So you need to get them started on heart if they're not on heart therapy. And then if you're starting them on heart therapy, working with an infectious disease and uveitis specialist is important because then they get immune reconstitution. And with immune reconstitution, all that hard work you did treating the CMV may go worse because one of the reasons that their CMV was so low, slowly progressive is their immune system was not fighting that fight. And as soon as their immune system starts mounting a response, that's where a lot of the damage can come from. So sort of balancing that, you want to get them healthier, but balancing that with maybe you don't ramp up right away and you work with, uh, again, infectious disease doctor, doctor in terms of using heart is important. They can get CME uh, from the infectious uh, and inflammatory component. And then RD risk. That's true for ARN. That's true for porn. That's true for CMV. There's a high RD risk with all of these. And there's a lot of debate in the retina and UVS community, for example. So if you have a sectoral area of CMV, there's been discussions. Do you prophylactically laser and laser off the area of necrosis? Do you just watch them? When do you do a vitrectomy, for example, put oil in to prevent an RD? And I think the vast majority of the community kind of says, you know what? Wait and see, but just give them the warning signs and intervene quickly if it happens. Because you can laser barricade, but let's say the CMV is occupying a third of the retina. That's a lot of retina to walk off. It's a high chance that it won't be a full barricade and they won't sit still for it. Um, and it's hard to laser near necrotic tissue because the retina doesn't take well. And there's a risk if your laser is too hot that you may burn through the retina, cause microbreaks and cause bigger problems. So yes, it can work, but it has to be like perfect. And it's very difficult to do perfect laser in a patient who's awake and sitting in front of you. And if you're taking them under, then you start thinking, well, if I'm going to put them under for a surgery, then I might as well maybe just do surgery. I usually reserve vitrectomy, silicone oil, those things for a patient who's already had a detachment. I think that's what most people do. And I don't know how many retina surgeons are out there who are budding, but surgical pearls for that, just quick surgical pearl, is very low threshold to use silicone oil because the reattachment rate for those patients with viral retinitis is very, very high. Silicone oil doesn't prevent every reattachment, but it's certainly giving that long-term tamponade is our best option right now to sort of prevent those complications. And oftentimes those are patients who end up with oil long-term because the reattachment risk is so high. Uh, and then the other pearl is don't try to do too much because that necrotic retina doesn't like being touched. It doesn't like being really zapped. You really can't do much with it. Your options are essentially leave it alone or try to eat it. Uh, and unless you have to, we, even though I know some anterior segment people think retina people like to go happy eating the <laughs> retina, we generally don't like to eat peripheral retina unless we have to. 
That was an amazing summary, if I do say so. I know that I certainly learned a lot, and I know that this episode will be one that I will circle back to as I study for oral boards. Thank you so much. Before we end the episode, I ask all of my patients, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? So I saw this question in advance, and I actually would say my father. And the reason I would say that is my father died when I was very young. And um, he died right as I was going to the verge of becoming an adult. And I think that it's an interesting transition as a kid when you start having adult conversations with your parents. I was 12 when he passed. And I remember I probably had like one like adult conversation, I mean, like talking about what his life was like and his experiences. And you don't necessarily have those conversations as equals in a way with your parents until you hit that age. And that, that's my, I, 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 the only regret is I never asked him more about his life or like learned more about him. And I think that would have been, so if I had to pick anyone, I would actually probably just have dinner with him because I think I would just gain a lot from the experience just talking to him and knowing more about him rather than kind of hearing third person about some of the things he did. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. Those were some really powerful answers and some beautiful reflections for us all to think about. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pupil Pod. And thank you to all of our listeners. See you next time on the Pupil Pod. 